This is You Evangelize On Air, the official podcast of the online membership community, youevangelize.org. You evangelize because every mission needs a plan. And now your hosts, Josh Canning and Michael Dopp. A big welcome, friends. Uh, we are You Evangelize On Air. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Josh Canning. I'm on with my good friend, Michael Dopp. Michael, how are you on this fine day? Doing fine. Thank you, Josh. Good stuff. You thought I was going to say something beyond day, eh? I did. Well, I was wondering how you're doing today, given that you're living with the alligators down in Florida. I tell you what, man, at first it's a little bit unnerving to be uh, living beside alligators, but you really get used to it. And now we're having a great time enjoying the wildlife down here. Anybody uh, out there who's never been to Ave Maria near Naples, Florida, it is worth a visit sometime. You should come check it out. But I am happy to be on air with you today, Michael, uh, especially given our topic today. Such an important topic, something that just has to be at the forefront of the thoughts of every person who cares about being part of the new evangelization. And the topic is our culture. And uh, we're going to be speaking about things that the evangelist needs to know about our culture. And I'm really excited just to sort of pick your brain about that. Michael, tell us a little bit about what we're going to be talking about. Well, the first thing is we have to sort of define our terms. You know, what is culture? Um, and, you know, and, and culture is just kind of this collection of our society's experiences and beliefs, um, meanings, our art, uh, attitudes, underlying philosophical assumptions, intellectual achievements. It, it's all these things kind of bundled together. And it's its one of these things that we all kind of know what it is, but it's difficult to put our finger on. But we kind of recognize that the society or, or the country perhaps that we live in, there are these underlying philosophical assumptions and beliefs, the way people think what's considered good, the priorities that people have, attitudes, concepts of meaning and whatnot. And uh, these are, even though we know that they're there, we sometimes underestimate the importance of them in our life and the particular intersection of them with Christian faith and therefore with evangelization. So today we're going to dig into that a little bit. Great. That sounds fantastic. Sometimes, you know, when you hear Catholics and we talk about the culture, the culture, it almost is just this really, you know, this big, almost this big ball of negative, negative, you know, and, uh, but that's not really the way we're supposed to think about it, are we? I mean, there, we're called to, to, to love the culture, to sort of see what's good in it, to extract that from, but also to really, in a sense, be um, discerners of the culture, you know, people who really understand what's good, what's bad. And especially for our purposes, what is the backdrop up against which we are going to be sharing the gospel. How can we make it so that it's going to be really understandable to the people in that culture? One thing that was emphasized a fair bit in business a couple of years ago and is still discussed today is what they call SWOT analysis, right? Strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. So a business can say, what are our current strengths? What are our weaknesses? What are the opportunities before us? And what are the threats we face? And I think the same with culture, that we can, that all cultures here on earth have some positive, some strengths. They have some things that are negative. They have some things in terms of the gospel that are opportunities for presenting the gospel, and they have some things that are threats to the gospel. And so it's not saying this is the ideal culture here or this culture is entirely rotten. It is it is really being discerning and seeing what opportunities are there, what strengths are there, so that it can be a 
an instrument or a, or a, a vehicle for the transmission of the faith. Love it. Love it. And you're going to be speaking today about seven things that we need to know about our culture. Why don't you just dive us right in? Sure. Well, the first thing is recognizing that it's not neutral. I like to think of the culture as being similar to the air that we breathe. It's so ubiquitous. It's so everywhere. We sometimes forget that it's there. But because it's so present, we have to be aware that it's having an impact on us. The culture, if it's like air, it's Sometimes it's more like smog, but you don't sometimes recognize that things are smoggy if you've spent the whole day in them. It's when you kind of come from clean air into smoggy air or from smoggy air into clean air that you notice the difference. And the culture that we live in, particularly in the West, in North America, uh, now in the 21st century, is not neutral. And by that, I mean it is either drawing us towards evil or it's drawing us towards good. As we said at the start, there's various components within the culture, some that are true, good, and beautiful, and some that aren't. But the culture is having some impact on us. It's either helping us to more fully live our vocation to love and follow Christ, or it's pulling us away from that. And unfortunately, in the postmodern relativistic culture that we live in today, more often than not, it's actually drawing us away from Christ. It's drawing us away from the church. It's making it more difficult to evangelize. And so sometimes people wonder why their children have left the faith. And when they look back, they see now more clearly all of the various cultural influences that were really quite negative upon them and that actually in many ways de-Christianized young people. So it's not that we have to be afraid of culture or think that it's all bad, but we have to have our eyes wide open because the culture is not neutral. That what we're getting out of Hollywood, what we're seeing in MTV, these things have real impacts on the heart mind and souls of people. And so we have to be aware of those. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely how how it will affect us as well as how it'll affect the people we're trying to reach. I remember when I was in college, having a conversation about uh, theology of the body with a friend who wasn't from any faith background. And as we're talking about sexual morality, I remember her saying to me, you know, I'm neutral because I've never had any religious upbringing. And I remember in my mind just thinking, are you crazy? <laughs> you're not, that doesn't mean you're neutral. Um, you've been brought up with ideas uh, in this in this area. You know, you just may have been evangelized by MTV or, or you know, by the pop culture, but none of us is really neutral. We're going to have a, an underpinning of ideas and philosophies, whether we're aware where they came from or not. And uh, I think as we in the church and in the new evangelization need to understand how we ourselves are affected by the culture, you know, we have to also understand that many people in our culture are wandering around thinking that they might be completely without bias. And that's just not the case. No, it's, it's not the case at all. And in fact, that's part of the current sickness of our culture is that it allows people to kind of believe the lie that they don't have any bias, that they haven't been formed when really they have. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Great. So the first thing to know about our culture, it's not neutral. What would be the second thing to know about our culture? You actually alluded to it in a wonderful way in that the culture is evangelizing. It is leading people to a particular worldview. Pew Research in the United States did some studies uh, in 2007 and then the similar study 2015. And you can compare the results between those two studies looking at religious belief and religious practice within the United States. What they found was the number of people from 2007 to 2015 
who had no belief. They just, they didn't know what they believed. They called them the nuns. The number of these people increased in the, in that eight year period by 50%. So the question is, who did this? Who are the missionaries that are converting people to be nuns? And the answer is, well, there are no missionaries. There's no churches that are making people this way. So what's happening? Well, it's the culture. It's the culture that is, you know, in air quotes, evangelizing people to have no faith. And so we see this in a very practical way where there's pressure to conform. You know, everybody thinks their conforming is bad. And in a certain sense, it is. In a certain sense, it's not. But some of those that are most vocal about not conforming, if you don't conform to their ideas, they get rather upset. So they think we need to be tolerant of everything, but they're not always tolerant of the Christian worldview. There's a pressure to accept certain things as Eva that are things that are contrary to the plan of God, things that are contrary to the natural law. You know, definitions of family that are not from God, but for man, uh, there's pressure in the culture to conform our priorities to, you know, as they say, keep up with the Joneses. So all of these are very powerful forces within the culture that in a certain sense are evangelizing us. They're trying to give us a worldview. They're trying to set our priorities for us in a certain sense, even lead us to worship, to worship the things of this world, to worship wealth, to worship comfort, to worship material goods, to worship licentiousness to worship ourselves in many ways. And so uh, to recognize that the culture is having a real impact and it too wants to convert people. It too wants to lead people to you know a certain faith. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I wonder, I mean, when, when I hear that stat that you gave, that the percentage of nuns increased by nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. That'd be wonderful if, if the N-U-N-S were increasing by 50% in eight years. But the N-O-N-E-S is have increased 50% from 2007 to 2015. That just seems radical. And I wonder if most people realize that kind of social change that's happening. I mean, if you were to look at any point in history over a hundred year span, that would seem dramatic. But we're talking over a seven year span. Like our, our world is in a dramatic place of shifting, is it not? I think I think you're right, Josh. And there's a variety of reasons for that. Uh, some of it's related to technology, to social media, that the transmission of ideas can occur much more quickly. Uh, and but we are, you know, we are seeing very, very rapid and significant change. And that should raise some flags for us. The change itself isn't good, but even the fact that things are changing so rapidly is in itself a cause for concern. So those are two important things to know about our culture, that it's not neutral and that it is evangelizing for good or for bad. Evangelization, Evangelizing in air quotes. What would be the third thing to know about our culture, Michael? Well, it said it's affected each of us more than we think. It's not just that people out there, people outside of the church, Many Catholics themselves have been deeply affected, and even some Catholics who claim to be Catholic, who still practice the faith, have been more influenced by the things of the world than by the gospel. I think all of us are susceptible to it. I think there's areas in my life that I need to continually examine my own conscience and measure my life against what the church says and not against the teachings and expectations of the world. There are certain things right now that we can be afraid to speak about because we're afraid the world will kind of, you know, nip it in the bud, that the world will push back against us. I had a conversation with an evangelical a couple weeks ago from a very faithful evangelical family. And uh, I didn't know this gal very well. I'm just kind of getting to know her. She's a, a friend of a friend. 
And she was speaking about how we can't really know anything to be absolutely true because we just experience everything in our own subjectivity. That means we're just experiencing it ourselves and we can't really universalize our own experience. And I was shocked by this because Christianity and all religions, to be honest, but Christianity rises and falls on objective truth claims that Jesus rose from the dead, that the church is founded by Christ, that the scriptures are inspired, that the Trinity is three persons in one God. And yet the skeptical view that the world has given us that we can't really know anything to be true, even faithful Christians have fallen into that. And when you fall into that, ultimately what you the conclusion that you have to arrive at is, well, I'm a Christian. I don't believe Christianity is actually true. It's just one belief among many. It's the one I prefer. It's the one I like. It's nice. It's what I've done. But it's not actually based on reality. That's a very strange way to see things. And it's interesting, Josh, because well, this is a very common thing in our culture. It's a very new fad. 200 years ago, 500 years ago, a thousand years ago, nobody would have thought that way. Now people would say, yes, Michael, but that's because today we're enlightened or we're progressive. Well, every culture thinks they're enlightened and progressive. Every culture thinks they're on the cutting edge and they have kind of seen things the way that they are. But what history's taught us is that that's often not the case, that there's a lot of wisdom from people that lived 500 years ago or a thousand years ago. G.K. Chesterton liked to question, well, people that always talk about progress, he'd say, but what are we progressing towards? Progress in itself isn't good. It's that we're getting closer to what is true, good, and beautiful. And he also liked to talk about tradition. He had a great definition for tradition. He said, tradition is the democracy of the dead. What he meant by that is that we listen to those that have come before us. You know, today it's all, you know, in fashion to say, if it didn't come from somebody in the last 25 years or the last five years even, it's not worth listening to. But Chesterton would say, just wait a minute. There were good, smart, holy, intelligent thoughtful people 100 years ago and 500 years ago and 1500 years ago and 2500 years ago. Maybe they have something to tell us. And so the culture, well, it has affected us deeply today. I think the antidote to that is recognizing, number one, the culture is far from infallible. Just because it claims to be enlightened and progressive doesn't mean it's good or true. And secondly, there's a lot of wisdom that we can learn from the saints, from the great thinkers, from the church over the past 2,000 years that actually reveals something much more profound and insightful than a lot of the, you know, to be frank, garbage that's put out today. It's strange that someone would think uncertitude would be an enlightened position. You know, it's really a strange revelatory thing about the age we live in, which is a very relativistic age where someone can say, these are just my beliefs and I'm not saying they're right, but they just happen to be my collection of beliefs. Um, and I'm not even sure if I really believe them and think that that's a great place to be. That's a very odd place to base your life, you know? Uh, and I just can't imagine in another age people saying, well, that's a good position. <laughs> no, it makes no sense. When you people begin to think about it, hopefully they begin to realize that, that we want to know what is true. We want to live in accord with truth. So instead of uh, living in accord with truth, just living in accord with preference, that doesn't give us anything solid to base our life on. And there's a lot of difficult, challenging, complex decisions we need to make in this world. And so on what basis or foundation do we do it? But the other thing I should point out, Josh, is that well, we can look backwards, we can also look forwards and say this kind of silly way of thinking, sort of pseudo-enlightenment or pseudo-progressive way of thinking, it is a fad. And 50 years, 100 years from now, I think it will be recognized for the bankrupt ideology that it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just to give a call back to you're quoting Chesterton from uh, Orthodoxy. And uh, one of my favorite quotes is, 
is in that same area of that book when he says, you know, uh, being progressive doesn't necessarily mean a good thing. Progress just means traveling down a road, quite possibly the wrong road is what he says. So I, I love that. And, and I think it is something that we should keep in mind. But as uh, just calling back to this point, being aware of the culture is that we might be trying to speak truth to people and certitude to people who might not even value that or recognize what that is. And we need to sort of know that as we are trying to, to evangelize to people. And for that reason, sometimes truth might not be the, the perfect uh, place to start. And I know you could speak a little bit more to other transcendentals, which might be easier uh, places to go, but that might be for a longer conversation. It may fit in here, but we're talking about the uh, things to know about our culture. And we've spoken through three of them. Uh, one is that it's not neutral. Two is that it is evangelizing for good or for bad. And three is that it has affected us more than we think. What else do you want to tell us, Michael, about things we should know about our culture? The fourth thing, and it, it follows from the reality that it, it's had a deep impact on all of us, even those who have been Christian their whole life, is that we need to purify our hearts and our minds of what is untrue. And this is very difficult to do. It can only be done through prayer and through study. And through the two of these, we can receive God's grace to allow our hearts and minds to be purified, that those things that God values, we value, that those things that are true, we come to believe to be true. And that the pseudo values of the culture, things like tolerance, can be properly understood. There certainly is a sense in which we must be tolerant, that people are free to disagree, that people are free to be of a different religion, people are free to make certain moral choices, people are free to disagree with us on politics and role of the government. At the same time, to be a good person, to be a good Christian, and to be a good member of our community, of our society, and a good citizen does not mean we must be tolerant of everything. We do not need to be tolerant of child abuse. We do not need to be tolerant of uh, the killing of the unborn child. We do not need to be tolerant of robbing banks. We do not need to be tolerant of prostitution. These things are damaging for individuals, for society, for cultures. And so as we allow the Holy Spirit to purify us, to to put on the mind of Christ, as St. Paul says, we can see things for what they are. We can look interiorly at our own heart, our own mind, and our own conscience, allow it to be properly formed so that we can live in accord with the plan that God has for us, but also so we can engage the culture, we can engage society in a way that is faithful to what God has revealed. And this is becoming increasingly difficult because the culture often wishes to silence us. So to speak about the truth of family life, to speak about the truth of the dignity of the unborn child, to speak about the evil of euthanasia, more and more our culture is putting various forms of pressure on us to remain silent. But I think if we allow ourselves to have our hearts and minds very much purified, with that will come a courage because we're standing on a very firm foundation, which is the revelation of God. And when we're on that foundation, we can go forward regardless of whether the people in our, in our culture, in our communities think that we're going too far or we're a little bit, um, you know, intolerant or we're just kind of pushing our own ideas. Instead, what we're doing is we're responding with the gospel to these situations that are before us so that we ourselves can be faithful, but also that the light of truth can be brought more fully into our society. Mm-hmm. And what are a couple of practical ways in which we can purify our hearts and our minds of what is untrue? I think number one, just continually asking the Holy Spirit to reveal to us what is true, but also then looking through what the church has taught. I think the catechism is a great place to start with that. So, you know, if we're uncertain of certain moral questions of what is good and what is not good, the catechism gives us some direction. There's also, of course, some great encyclicals and writings by the Holy Father. And if there's areas that we just can't really discern on our own, we're just not sure, you know, what types of 
of movies should we be exposing our children to? Is this sort of music, is it appropriate or not for a Christian to be listening to? You know, we do our best through prayer and through reading, but if we're not sure, we just bring it to people who are more intelligent than us, better formed, who we can really trust their insight, we can really trust um, their formation, that they will give us good advice and good wisdom on it. And that's a, an important part of forming our conscience. That's great advice. And this is an area where we can rely upon the church, both in her teaching, but also in her members and the counsel of others to purify our hearts and our minds of what is untrue. We're talking about ways in uh, things, sorry, things to know about the culture. And we've gone through a number of them. What would be the next thing to know about our culture, Michael? The culture changes. It's always changing. That's why we got where we are. And five years from now, a hundred years from now, the culture won't be the same. I'm currently reading a book called a Citadel of God by uh, Louis de Waal. And it's, it's a historical fiction uh, about the life of St. Benedict. And in all of his books, Louis de Waal writes a lot about the, 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 the culture and the, the political circumstances in which the saints found themselves. And, you know, fifth century Rome, Theodoric had just was <laughs> had just taken over. He was one of the Goths. And you know, many of the Romans think this is just this is the end. This is the end of our culture. This is the end of the world. And you know, here we are, fifteen hundred years later, and, and Rome is still around, and many things have happened in the last fifteen hundred years in terms of the culture in that city and in the world. These things are in continual flux. So we have to remember that today so as not to get discouraged, but also so that we can see those things within the culture which are good and which we can amplify, which can be seen as opportunities. That the culture, as it changes, it's never entirely rotten and it's never entirely sanctified. It's somewhere in between. And so there's always hope and there's always opportunity. Mm, isn't that an important reminder? I got to say, I can definitely feel like those characters in the in the book where you look around and you say, oh, gosh, we've lost our sense of what it means to be human. We've lost our sense of the value of human life. We've lost our sense of what it means to be, um, you know, in a marital relationship. We're sunk, you know, but it's good to remember that there's all kinds of different uh, phases of history in which people can be born. And some people are born in, a, I want to say, easier time in the sense, you know, where there's virtue is a little bit more lauded in the world. But I mean, I'm sure it had its own challenges challenges, whatever era you're born into. And we're just in a very unique era that God has entrusted us to be missionaries in the world in a time where you know, let's call, let's call back to G.K. Chesterton again. He, he said that man has always been lost. Modern man has lost his address. Uh, and sometimes it really does feel like that, doesn't it? But as you say, culture is not uh, a stagnant thing. Culture changes. And um, and we can't presume necessarily uh, what's what's coming up down the pike. We just need to live and be faithful and, and do the work that's before us in the culture that we're born in. That's right. And, you know, interesting, the sixth thing I think that is important to know about culture is that, that change can come about with us, that culture changes one heart at a time. It, it doesn't just come down from on high. It doesn't just come up from a volcano. It comes from humans. It comes from people living out their life and making choices, uh, how they will live and how they will seek truth, goodness, and beauty. And so we can allow the culture within our own heart to be transformed. And by allowing that to kind of bleed into the world, by allowing it to shine into the world, the culture itself begins to change. And this, Josh, is why this is so important for evangelization, that evangelization is the primary tool for the transformation of culture. Because if culture resides within human hearts, nothing transforms a human heart more fully and more beautifully than an encounter with Christ. If people who are died in the wall, postmodern, atheist, relativists, you know, pro-abortion, uh, you know, anti-family, all of these things, when they encounter Christ, 
there will be a lot of turmoil, of course, but as they encounter him and respond to him, all of those things will begin to shift because there will be the divine light shining within them that can kind of scrape away all of the rust and and all of the lies that they have come to believe. And so if we really want to change the culture, the two most important things we do is allow ourselves to be more deeply penetrated by Christ and by his love and to go and evangelize the world. And that ultimately, although I haven't got to the end of the book, I know how it ends. That's ultimately what St. Benedict was able to do. He was able to allow the gospel to penetrate him and become a tremendous saint, but then also his light and the light of his community shone into the world and ultimately, you know, brought about tremendous change within Europe and even in one sense, the creation of Europe itself as we know it. Praise God. So culture can change and it can change with us, whether we expect it, whether we realize it or not. What would be the next thing to know about our culture, Michael? So the last thing is, I think the importance of creating subculture. And this does not mean fully withdrawing from the culture. It doesn't mean writing off the culture and saying it's all rotten and we just have to run away into the hinterland and just live with a few friends. Although, but I think the more important thing we could do would be to just make sure we have thick and intentional Christian community with us while at the same time engaging the wider culture. We need this subculture because it encourages us. It transmits the faith. It allows our children to experience truth, goodness, and beauty. It protects them from some of the more vulgar and corrosive dimensions of the culture at large. It really creates a place for us to flourish ourselves. It is almost impossible to thrive as a Christian if we don't have something of a Christian culture around us. My wife likes to say that Christianity is not for the Lone Ranger. And while it can be tempting to, you know, run away from the chaos of our world sometimes, very few of us can really do well without some healthy Christian community around us. And, you know, unfortunately, we don't often find that in our parishes, although that should be where we find it. It doesn't happen by accident. It takes work. It takes effort. It takes reprioritizing our life, finding those people that we can have this sort of thick friendship with so that uh, they can encourage us. We can encourage them. We can celebrate those things that ought to be celebrated. And we can allow the faith within us to come out of us in a way that we can kind of let our guard down. We can just be ourselves as Christians without facing some of the hostilities of the world. It's not that we have to run away from the world, but this allows us to gain the strength and the preparation to face the world. In some ways, you know, to form a good soldier, you have to put them through basic training. You have to take them away. You have to train them. You have to put them on a base that they're with other soldiers. They're learning and they're encouraged so that when the time for the battle comes, they're ready to go out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Amen. Now, these uh, types of subcultures, hopefully you can you can plug into them through your local parish. Would you say, is that a good place to look? Is it local, uh, maybe movements of the church? What would you say, Michael? I think a parish is a great place to look and probably a place where you rarely find what you're looking for. And that's just the unfortunate reality. It's tragic. It's where people should be finding these communities and they're not. I think that is one of the reasons we see the flourishing of the new lay movements. The lay movements are not simply a response to the crisis in parishes, but they are in part. And oftentimes in these slave movements, people find a real sense of community, a subculture that's very healthy. It also, Josh, it doesn't have to be formalized. It can just be two, three, four other friends or couples who have the same values, the same priorities, want to raise their children the same way or live the same type of life that you meet with on a regular, semi-regular basis. Maybe it's scheduled, maybe it's not. Maybe you do a book study together, maybe you don't. Maybe it's just spontaneous. You just have great conversations and meals and friendships. You occasionally pray together. There's all sorts of um, 
formats it can take from very structured to very unstructured. The importance isn't exactly what it looks like. The importance is that it's created a subculture that is creating an environment in which your faith can flourish. Mm-hmm. Now, speaking of subcultures, you and I have worked to create one of these subcultures, haven't we, Michael, And at uh, the youvangelize.org membership site. And for anybody who might be listening to this and may not be a member of that site, you may want to check that out. Uh, you know, we provide resources to help people in the work of evangelization, to give them a plan that they can actualize in their lives and to find a place of community and support. So uh, consider checking that out. Uh, that is another one of those uh, subcultures that uh, might be healthy and helpful for you. We're talking about things to Know about our culture, and uh, especially pertaining to um, evangelizing within our culture. And just to recap them, the first six were: it is not neutral; it is evangelizing. The culture has affected us more than we think. We need to purify our hearts and minds of what is untrue within the culture. It, the culture can change; it can change with us, and we can create subculture. What would be the last thing to know about our culture, Michael? Those are the sort of the seven main points. I think oh, seven. It's okay; I can help I'm, you. With... I'm not great at counting. No, honest. it's okay. Yeah. Not my strong point. We have you on for your good looks, Josh. You're on for your <laughs> mathematics skills. Wait, this is just an audio podcast. <laughs> Oops. So, you know, here's here's the final point. It's just a word of encouragement that we do not have to compromise with the culture. If we're faithful to Christ, that's what matters. And we have many great saints, even great martyrs, that we can look to. It's not to say we're all going to get martyred. There is a cost being faithful to the gospel today because it is so different than the ambient culture around us in North America. But our life is short, and one day we will stand before Christ, and he will ask us, were you faithful to what the media and academia told you you needed to do, or were you faithful to the scriptures? Were you faithful to the gospel? We need to be faithful to that. That's why we need friendships. That's why we need to purify ourselves. That's why we need to form our conscience. That's why we need to have our eyes wide open with the culture. At the end of the day, we just have to recognize that compromise for the Christian is not an option. And even if it costs us, it costs Christ so much more to be faithful to the will of the Father than it will ever cost us. And if we do that, and if enough Christians do it, we will begin to see the transformation of the culture. We'll begin to see a culture of life, a new springtime that John Paul II prophetically foretold. Mm-hmm. Amen. Isn't it great that there is a, a desire in the human heart to make things better, you know, to improve on what we have encountered in the world and to and to call it to its highest actuality. And for the Christian, it's, it's wonderful that we have a sense, new eyes to look at what that means. And we are called to, again, not withdraw fully from our culture, but to be formed well according to our faith and to bring life and light to that culture. Michael, thanks so much for talking us through things to know about the culture uh, when we're engaging in this work. And once again, for those listening, uh, you may want to check out youevangelize.org uh, for more resources like this and along topics like this. Thank you once again for listening and God bless you. You've been listening to You Evangelize On Air. For more resources on how you can become the evangelist that God has made you to be, visit us at youevangelize.org. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Until next time, God bless.